Welcome everyone to All About Windows Phone Insight Podcast 138. I'm recording this on Thursday the 7th of May 2015. I'm Steve Litchfield with me, my co-partner and cohort, um, Rafe Blanford. Hello everybody. Yes, great to be here again. Uh, we managed to be a little late on the recording of this podcast, but I don't think there's any harm done. There's a bit of hardware to talk about. Returning to some topics we probably should have addressed uh, a few weeks ago, Steve, as well as uh, talking about some new Cortana features uh, coming out and there's other bits and pieces so we give our usual 40 minutes or so of chat on the latest that's happening in the windows phone world yes although you say we're late in actual fact it's only been seven days since the previous one because we're <laughs> late, late last week indeed <laughs> yeah so hopefully we'll get back onto sort of normal schedule uh at, at some point but uh, i think both of you and i've been a little busy in in the last week and anyway we're recording this on election day in the uk just to add a little bit of extra excitement well, I voted for Rafe Blandford. Um, I didn't vote for Steve Litchfield because he wasn't standing in my constituency, <laughs> but I surely would have done. Indeed. indeed. Uh, let's start with something that we have uh, kind of overlooked. We wrote a story on it on April the 15th, and it's now May the 8th. Uh, and we haven't actually talked about it much on the podcast, but it, there is, in some markets, a Lumia 540 brand new announced, a dual SIM. Uh, now, the 535, we thought quite highly of Rafe um, in terms of value for money and form factor and everything. And that was released quite well internationally, but did have a few touchscreen oddities that some people were finding. I'm kind of wondering whether the 540 dual SIM is a case of Microsoft saying, well, OK, the 535 was along the right lines, that we're going to fix the the touchscreen issues, we're going to up the spec, we're going to improve everything um, and uh, make it slightly cheaper <laughs> into the bargain. Uh, the only downside, perhaps, is only getting a, a slightly restricted release at first. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think personally this is more about something I've talked about in previous podcasts where at the low end things move so quickly in terms of component price changes and also what your competition is doing that you kind of need to iterate faster than you typically do in certainly the high end and the upper end of the mid-tier and so we've seen many more devices in the 500 series than anywhere else i also think that's because that's where windows phone has done well and so in order to kind of reach all the possible market points in lots of different countries they've just done a few more variants and i mean it one part of me goes they could have called it all the same model number and done it that way but of course this does make it stand out a bit and actually there are some pretty significant differences um, the 540 dual SIM, as you say, is you know restricted markets. I mean, this is mainly uh, targeted at some of the kind of developing markets. It's the Middle East, Africa, Asia Pacific, and a select few European markets. That's partly also the dual SIM. Typically, the Western operators aren't keen on those. They don't want you using uh, someone else's SIM in their phone, whereas they're much <laughs> more relaxed about it elsewhere. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a 540 or an equivalent device before too long. But this does catch the attention because it has a, a 720p screen. I think that's the most important thing about it. It's the first of the 500 series to do that, and it does make it more competitive with the lower-cost Android devices. Um, it, in, in terms of pricing, well, it, it's difficult to actually make that judgment uh, because of the, the markets it's being available in. Um, but it's actually, again, one of these cheap Windows phone devices. Um, it's sort of... A slightly higher in price than the uh, 535, maybe sort of £15 or so, 
Um, but you know, these these launch prices is always a, a bit difficult to talk about. So you know, we are talking around maybe you know, seventy pounds, something like that, if it was available in the UK. Um, just to go through the difference, I think that's worth doing. It's got a higher p- capacity battery than the uh, 535, so it's 2200 versus 1905. It's slightly thicker and slightly weightier. That's really reflecting the, the, the battery size. Um, there's actually a slightly different um, back camera on it. It's an 8 megapixel f2.2, so it's actually better than the, um, the, the Lumia 535. So that's, I think, particularly noticeable in conjunction with the screen as well. And... Uh, then there's a slight difference in the design. Um, it's actually more akin to the 600 series where they've kind of got some of the shiny edges and casing rather than a sort of dual layer or at least a hint of it, um, rather than the very plain thing you get with the 535. So I think the way I would conclude talking about this is it, it's offering a different value proposition to the kind of previous low end devices. Don't see it as a replacement or something like that. See it as additional. Um, so the proposition here is you're paying a little bit extra to get a high resolution screen and improved imaging. That's always sort of going to happen naturally anyway, because, you know, last year's low end becomes last year's very low end and the mid tier comes down, everything like that. Um, so I, I think this is actually driven by market research, basically consumer demand and then requests from operators who are probably finding that the you know, 535 wasn't quite cutting it in terms of screen and camera. They needed something a little bit more. Um, and it's because this low end of the market is so ferociously competitive, even these relatively small changes can actually have a quite a big impact on sales. Um, as I said, that's one of the reasons we see this faster refresh rate for the low end of the mid tier devices. Um, you know, it is a certain amount of specification trickle down. And so I actually think 720p screens will become more standard on these low end devices and we'll see the megapixels uprated. We've kind of seen that happen in the mid-tier with the most recent devices, the 640 yeah. being a really good example of that. Um, it is interesting that this 540 still, of course, has the, the lower-end processor, the Snapdragon 200. And so, um, you know, I would still say the 640 is probably the best overall when we're talking, especially the value segment. Um, but, yeah, this is a, a notable upgrade over something like the 535. Um, and, it, it, you know, it fits in well when you consider you've got the 435, which is you know, lower cost and does have kind of more cut down if you like. Um, so, and I, and I think obviously we're going to see these features come into the rest of this low end portfolio in time. So the 540 is kind of a, a bellwether for actually it's time to upgrade what we consider the minimum specification on Windows Phone to be in terms of some of the components outside the core RAM and uh, mem- memory, which actually has been the kind of the story of the previous generation of those 500 series devices uh, personally can't see myself using one of these <laughs> uh, we will try and get our hands on one just to sort of talk about performance of 720p on snapdragon 200 and that kind of thing uh, but i think we can be pretty sure that microsoft will have thought about that quite carefully and it's not going to be one of these you know lower lower tier um, smartphone manufacturers where we've seen a not great combination of hardware and software so I think we can be reasonably sure it's going to be a, a well-rounded device in terms of that software hardware integration um, yeah. I mean Steve how about you I mean, would you recommend this to a friend or family member who was looking for a cheap device and maybe wanted to go a little bit up on the screen resolution uh, I would but I would do, give exactly the same caveat that you've given is pay an extra £10 £15 and get the 640 yeah. which I think is a stonking device I think the 640 is a it doesn't have the full clear black display, but it does have a, an anti-era 
reflection layer, and that does have a big effect when you're out and about. And let's face Agreed. it, if you're if you're using something like a five three five five forty six forty, you're going to be young. You're going to be with it. You're not going to be huddled in your armchair drinking a cocoa <laughs> like like us oldies. So you're actually going to be out in the in the fresh air. And I think outdoor visibility will play a big difference. Um, I do have a. You mentioned the seven twenty p making its way down to this price point, which is pretty impressive, really. Despite the uh, even the Snapdragon two hundred, it shows what they can wring out of these lower end processors, really, on Windows Phone at least. Um, uh, what I wanted to ask you, Rafe, we've seen um, the camera getting better here, and you quite rightly point out it's got a larger aperture and a higher megapixel count. That's obviously not everything, and the sensor size is obviously important. Yeah. But uh, I would argue even more important, and we started seeing this. Uh, I suppose the 830s, the the lowest end device with optical image stabilization. But we're now seeing OIS coming in, an awful lot of manufacturers' units across the mobile industry, and presumably the the people, the, the companies physically making these camera units, um, commoditized cameras that they're actually building in OIS at the factory. This is not some Nokia hardware speciality anymore. OIS is becoming mainstream, certainly at the top end, and I would argue with the 830 and, and the mid tier. And I would, I would say we're probably only about a, a year or so away from the first OIS um, coming into these sort of £100 handsets like the 640 and 540, at which point even, you know, Uncle Tom, Dick and Harry in the street with their low-end phones, relatively low-end smartphones, will be taking pretty decent photographs in the evening. Indeed. I mean, this is the trickle-down kind of law of mobile, if you like, that uh, you know last year's component that sort of mid-tier becomes... Uh, next year's low-end one i mean there is a limit to how much that can happen and i would say um, one of the important things to realize about ois is there are qualities of implementation just as there are with you know how good a screen is um with something like the, the cameras is actually it's quite an easy thing to judge because you can look at the you know the format size or the size of the sensor or the aperture size and that gives you some very good clues um you know with the quality element of ois it's actually to do with you know how many uh, axes it works on, you know, how sensitive it is, how responsive it is. I think, you know, as you get to those lower price points, some of that will get sacrificed. But yeah, absolutely, we're going to see it um, on, on sort of lower cost devices. Uh, yeah, maybe that's a bit optimistic, but I mean, I certainly always surprised by how quickly things happen. And actually, the, you know, in one sense, this 540 is a, a great example of that. I mean, the one thing that is worth saying, I mean, you referred there to the 640. Um, you know, being 10, 20 pounds more expensive. Quite rightly said, for most people in the UK, it would be, it would certainly be the recommended device to kind of upgrade to. I would just, uh, you know, caveat that with 10 or 20 pounds doesn't sound like very much, but when that's actually getting on for a third of the cost of the device, you know, it, it does become, you know, a significant price difference. Um, this is the thing you always have to remember in the low end and mid tier devices. Smaller pricing differences are, are much more important than they are at the high end. You know, if you're paying, Five hundred pounds for a device paying five hundred and twenty is is not you know, that big a deal um, at the low in the market. I mean that you know it, it plays especially in the pay as you go market. Even in the UK, you know most of these uh, purchases are going to be value driven. I they're going to go for something that's really good value for money. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. If I'm making that recommendation, same as you, I'd say go for the six forty. Spend that little bit extra. You you should be able to justify it. Um, in, in certainly most markets, but where this is started, of course, if you think about, you know, Africa or, you know, some of those other markets where actually, you know, the purchase of a mobile phone can be a really major consumer purchase decision can be a significant part of you know, your, your income. It's very difficult, even for us sort of thinking about it to really appreciate it. I don't think, you know, you know, would have a very different attitude towards our smartphones if we were paying a couple of months salary 
uh, to to get our hands on one, which uh, I think most of us are fortunate not to have to do. So just bear that in mind when we when talking about pricing and thinking about price for any smartphone or indeed you know kind of any of these consumer electronic items. Yeah, well, I think I need a couple of months' salary to pay for a ga- Galaxy S6 Edge, <laughs> 128 gigabytes. Especially the gold version, which is uh, yeah. like hen's teeth at the moment. Now, uh, Build, uh, Microsoft's annual conference was uh, a couple of weeks ago. And last week in the podcast, we discussed, for example, Project Storia, which is this uh, bridge technology Microsoft has developed um, for letting Android developers take their Android code and basically... Um, it's not so much ported across, but kind of uh, tr- tr- translated across automatically to run as a full Windows 10 application. Now, obviously, there are little tweaks they have to do if they want to get live tiles and background notifications, all that sort of stuff. But it basically means that uh, Android applications can start appearing on Windows uh, and Windows 10. Now, it, it raises various questions from the developer's point of view as to will this damage the, the, the nat- native developers who uh, produce Windows 10 and Windows Phone applications natively. And I would argue possibly not. If you're going to make a really good Windows application, you're going to write it in the in the right tools, you're going to write it in the language you've been accustomed to writing for the last year or so, and you'll still produce a better app at the end of the day. But the more interesting thing I wanted to discuss in an editorial up on the site, which I entitled The Platform Play, Windows 10 and Tech e- Ecosystem Market Share, was in answer to the criticism people saying, well, surely now that this is kind of the death knell of Windows Phone. And I... And I was arguing quite, well, I hope rightly, I'm hoping to get your comments, Rafe, that yes, in a sense, this is the death knell of Windows Phone because Windows Phone will cease to exist in a few months' time because it will become fully 100% binary compatible. It will just transform seamlessly on everyone's devices into Windows 10. And the big thing, the big difference, and the thing I wanted to represent in my rather colorful chart <laughs> was the fact that this Windows 10 system that Win- the Windows Phone is going to become is not just a matter of 90 million, 100 million installed base uh, smartphones across the world. All of a sudden, it's part of an ecosystem that's in the order of 1,600 to 1,700 million, i.e. 1.7 billion devices across the world, which are potentially, I emphasize the word potentially, fully Windows 10 compatible. Now, Windows 10 is a free upgrade on all uh, desktops and tablets. And of course, it's a free upgrade on the phone. So in theory, we could see the the ecosystem ecosystem that we're currently talking about, Rafe, on these podcasts on our site, which is currently in that order of just, just under 100 million uh, active users worldwide, all of a sudden it could grow by a factor of 17 just by the fact that Microsoft are expanding it into this big wider world of Windows 10. Am I totally off base here? No, I, I don't think you're totally off base here. I mean, I, I'm sure as we've kind of seen in the comments, there is lots of big caveats that need to be applied to this but in essence that's the the microsoft vision of things and project historia as you say is particularly interesting because it is effectively uh it's not quite an emulation because there's actually more to it than that and one of the things is when we talk about these actually the technical requirements are more complicated than you know you, you might first assume with the way that microsoft describes it and certainly on the ios side of things it's actually far more of a translation of code and then some additional work that you'll you'll need to do. Uh, but as I said in the last podcast, that's really about reducing or trying to reduce development costs. Um, there is also we haven't kind of got the full information on this yet, and there's some questions about you know how these apps will be promoted. Will they also run on Windows 10 and sort of all the other places? And probably the answer is to that is not necessarily. Um, you know, when you start thinking about tablets, PC, and certainly when you, you think about other places that Windows 10 is going to run. Uh, I noticed you were also very careful to say theoretical and potential kind of <laughs> ecosystem yeah. size, because actually I think 
the idea that everyone who's running Windows uh, 7 or indeed going back to XP or Windows 8 will upgrade to Windows 10 is by no means guaranteed. I mean, Microsoft are making it a free upgrade for a year. So I think a lot of people on Windows 8 will certainly upgrade. I think uh, some of the Windows 7 users may not. Nonetheless, the, the, the point remains that, you know, suddenly the Windows ecosystem, as we understand it, will be, sort of become unified and will become much bigger as far as the, the mobile portion is concerned. And I, I think that's actually a, a very valid point, and it's something that hasn't been necessarily fully appreciated. Um, nonetheless, uh, it's also worth saying that that really only applies to these unified apps that Microsoft talks about, and they obviously have to be written in a specific way and does require, in most cases, a new app investment. There'll be a lot of people with existing Windows apps and indeed Windows Phone apps that that existing investment doesn't suddenly magically run across all of Windows 10. It will run off the kind of the legacy bits and will continue to work fine on Windows 10 on whichever target platform you originally created it for and so you know some of that optimism has to be tempered by kind of what the reality will actually be and so i mean in terms of it's kind of a fresh start but it's certainly true for people looking at creating windows apps i mean my advice actually would be you know just pause slightly think about building for windows 10 actually the tools are now available and probably go ahead and do that rather than you know doing multiple projects as you would have to at the moment or other even at the moment, you in theory can share some code base. And in the future, you know, they talk about the single binary in one app. Even that's a bit misleading because you will still have to create a, a user interface or a user experience for all the different devices you run on. It's not like you just create one and just hope it works. You're kind of going to create a, a UI um, for mobile and then you might create it for tablet and desktop as well, which is kind of a separate issue. I don't want to get too bogged down that because I think your point is absolutely uh an important one to appreciate and it's a unique advantage to uh windows um, at the moment and i would also say the continuum stuff that have high-end phones running the kind of the desktop versions also gets very interesting but i think i would caution all of this with the impact of that may take a while to you know truly be felt and you can make the argument that the platform itself becomes less important than the apps and services and so what I'm sure Google in particular would say is you can experience the Google way of doing things regardless of the platform and you'll have a similar Gmail experience whether you're on Android or an iPhone. And actually, the irony here is, of course, that Windows you know, doesn't really get that kind of first-class support from a mobile point of view, but you certainly do you know, through your desktop Windows browser. But, but it is a really interesting one to think about because it does make Microsoft you know, suddenly have a much bigger ecosystem and, you know, in the build keynote, they talked about having a billion devices uh, within a, you know, a few years. And you know, certainly that starts to stack up and be very interesting when you're comparing it against the size of Android and iOS. The one big, big, big caveat with this, though, is they're not all the same type of devices. So that one billion windows will be very desktop and laptop heavy. Um, something like iOS will be kind of split between some desktop, a relatively small amount, uh, quite a lot of tablet, you know, the iPad, and then lots of iPhones. And Google is actually kind of the at the other end of the spectrum. It's almost entirely um, smartphone. There is a bit of tablet, and you could argue, argue with Chrome OS, there's a bit of desktop, but those are very small in comparison to Android smartphone. I would say that the smartphones are where there's the most active kind of app culture. I mean, smartphones apps are much more prominent in people thinking than desktop apps. And so the question becomes, would you want to run a smartphone app 
on a desktop or a, a laptop, you know, are you going to be installing, I know, the TripAdvisor or the London Transport or City Mapper onto a desktop computer? In most cases, the answer is going to be no at the moment. Will that change? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, if these apps were available, would you have them on your laptop and desktop, especially if they sort of worked well and played nicely across devices? Actually, I think that's an interesting thing to yeah. think about. But what it actually means is I think Microsoft, even if it does manage to get to a quality in terms of ecosystem volume, it's still going to be at a disadvantage because most of that volume is going to make, be made up of desktop and laptop, which aren't particularly app-friendly or rather aren't the things that people want to run apps on. And so I think the, the volume might be a little bit misleading, which is why I think this argument, you have to be very careful when making it. From a, you know, a developer point of view and from, you know, looking at it from a pure numbers point of view, it makes sense when you actually then think about it in terms of app strategy and business objectives. You know, let's take an airline app, for example. You absolutely want that running on a smartphone because you're, you know, going through the airport and doing stuff with it. Um, do you want it running on a desktop? Yeah, maybe for booking flights when you're sitting at home or certainly on a tablet device and tablets are those kind of interesting crossover. But you're not going to take your desktop with you to kind of do the boarding pass as you go through security. And you're not really going to get your laptop out to do that either. Maybe a transformer device like Surface, but honestly, you really want it on mobile, don't you? And so, as I said, that prioritization or that hierarchy of app want is much higher on smartphone than it is on desktop, which means that Microsoft with the Windows ecosystem kind of has a inherent disadvantage. But for them, it's the only thing they can do, and it's a really smart thing to do. It does make the ecosystem seem bigger. And actually, uh, I firmly believe that that kind of multiple device behavior, you know, having an ecosystem that works seamlessly across phone, across tablet and PC is, is very important. I think Microsoft has also been very smart, and they're not you know, ignoring iOS and Android. They're providing their stuff there as well. And so you can mix and match, if you like, so you can have Windows 10 on your desktop and still get some of the shared experience, even if you've got an Android or iOS device. I suspect Apple in particular, but also Google will be less willing to do that. And so Microsoft may steal a bit of a march on them and kind of become known as the one for, uh, you know, that cross device thing. Whether that actually helps Windows mobile out remains to be seen. Cause of course, you know, the, the first and best on Windows phone is kind of not going away completely. Uh, Cause I still think that would be the most seamless one, but. You know, interesting one. Very, very interesting discussion point. This, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, going back to the the old days of Windows on the desktop. You know, you where did you get your applications from? Normally, it was going to a shop and buying a big box cardboard box with a CD in. Or if you knew where to go, you probably look at download sites on the internet and go from there. And there, there are pile of crock these days but let's not go there um so but i've been playing with the windows 10 um in preview on my uh, windows laptop and uh, i suspect you have too as well rafe and i've been quite impressed and the store prominence is quite high and even if you type stuff in the um in the the search box you get prompted for applications that match your search query from the mm. store so it seems like microsoft really is pushing the application side of things um you know fr from its store on the desktop and that that surely will flow down to the phones. I can just imagine that maybe I'm being slightly naive and romantic here, but I can imagine someone walking into a phone shop in November 2015 and their their desktop or laptop got a, a free upgrade to Windows 10 uh, two or three months ago and they're very happy. It's it's nice and fast. It's whizzy. They've got some app desktop applications. They, they're familiar with that new start screen tiled interface and all of a sudden they'll give Windows 10 phones 
stroke Windows Phone um, devices in the shop. They'll look at them on the stand and hang on a minute, how can we never notice it at all? That's exactly the same interface. And so the same icons, the same applications that I'm running on my desktop and laptop. And I can have exactly the same interface ostensibly on my smartphone. And it's time for my new contract renewal or I want to treat myself to a new phone. I can see myself that actually having an impact for the very first time. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, people will criticize that and say that's, you know, looking through windows, tinted glasses. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I don't think you can rule out the advantage of that. I mean, we, we saw Microsoft try to do the same thing with Windows 8. And I think the prominence of the store hasn't really changed that much. It, it is a bit more in Windows 10, to be fair. But, and, and if you start getting the quality and content of the apps in there, I mean, it, it does become quite interesting, you know, can Microsoft, you know, convert desktop users into app users? You know, it's actually a really interesting question. And, you know, you have that live tile interface. I, I don't see actually any reason why you can rule that out altogether. So I don't think you'll get that same app culture on desktop, but nor will it, nor it's not a binary thing. It's not yes or no. I actually think, you know, it will move, move that way. You know, you do then get the question, is it a good idea to have the same user interface on mobile as it is on desktop? The, we'll have to you know, wait and see what happens because certainly that was one of the issues that was identified with Windows 8. But I actually think there's nothing to stop you having the same kind of design principles and design language, yet actually have a fairly different experience. And that's kind of what has been hinted at with um, with Windows 10 Mobile with Continuum, that you kind of get this desktop experience. And and so I don't actually think that's necessarily, you know, going to be a bad thing because it, it, the utopia of having that consistency of feel and ease of use across desktop and mobile makes sense. What would be, uh, what would be wrong is to kind of try and shoehorn one into the other. So Microsoft, I think, will be very careful to avoid that. They know what happened with that with regard to Windows 8 and kind of the start screen there. Um, there's always kind of these shifting or, or growing pains, if you like. So, you know, as I said, I think um, Microsoft is doing the right thing, but it, it does feel a bit responsive to, you know, the, the battle or a reaction to the market that happened some time ago. So, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. And you can, of course, turn this around the other way and see, could Android or iOS come and colonize the desktop? And actually, you know, Apple sort of kind of thought about doing that. You kind of, kind of see the trend for that with uh, the iPad and uh, iOS there. And OS X has certainly got more iOS like, but, uh, from a, entirely from a technical architecture point of view, Microsoft is much closer to delivering that. And so I wonder whether they'll get a bit of an advantage, you know, it'll, it'll come back the other way. And so people who've written Microsoft off altogether and say they've lost the war might have to look at it and go, well, actually, this is something that, that might even it out. And, it, and this isn't the end either. You know, this will continue to evolve. I think this idea that, you know, computing just takes place on a, a single device will definitely go away. And it's not just about phone and computer. You know, it is all the screens in your life, whether that's something on your wrist, your TV, and indeed to the things that you might rent temporarily when you're kind of in a car, when you're on a plane, things like that. And so, you know, this is a story that's far from complete. And I think Microsoft just deserves credit for actually being the ones to, you know, not sit on its, you know, history and laurels. I mean, it kind of has to because it missed mobile so badly in one sense. Um, and it, it's one that kind of have this conversation with you. It always makes you go, hmm, I need to think about this a bit more and then think I'll, I'll come up with some great conclusion for the next podcast and give <laughs> everyone the answer. But of course, it's not that easy. But hopefully we're here, we're giving people an idea of, 
know where things might go and to sort of think about don't think about the status quo think think about where we'll be in five years time yeah absolutely and you're completely right that, that today everything is very much service-led and we talked last week on the podcast about moving from screen to screen seamlessly and in, indeed if, if you're doing something on netflix or Flickr or twitter or facebook or, or email uh all of those things can be accessed on all your devices. So it, there really is not no real case for platform lock-in in, in, in that sense. Yes, there are some things that only iOS does. There are some things that only Android does. There are some things that only Windows does. But uh, increasingly, I would argue that 90% of what most people do probably could be done on any platform. But um, we must move on, Ray. We've got lots of things to talk Indeed. about. So, um, we do have, have completed my Microsoft band review. And I think I probably slightly annoyed Microsoft by the headline. The headline I should read it to you says, um, a prototype and proud. And I think my, my, the, the, the beta version of my review before I published it was, um, the best selling prototype ever. <laughs> by which I mean that it's, it, it is quite clearly in terms of hardware and software and design and build everything screams first generation it screamed it's not quite a prototype that's perhaps doing a, a, a disservice but it's very clearly version one not intended to be sold to the mainstream and and i i stand by my words in that review you 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 cannot give the microsoft band to anyone other than a tech enthusiast and expect it to survive now i have the more i use it the more I've been enjoying it, the more I found uses for it. I, I wrote a little piece during the week about uh, using Cortana on the band to control music, which is something you can't easily do with a, a normal wired headset or, uh, or actually on the device itself because the very act of using Cortana interrupts the flow of the music. But using the band, you can be listening to whatever you like to listen to, Rafe, and you can speak the, the instruction next track or uh, whatever, it, or play a different track, play a different artist into the, your Microsoft band, and it will seamlessly switch the music on the phone without any um, obvious break and obvious gap. So there's clearly an awful lot of tech here. There's an awful lot of great ideas. If only they can make it thinner, more durable, more waterproof, um, slightly, perhaps slightly faster, slightly longer battery life. So many ifs, but a, a genuine version one to version two shift could make this a very, very competitive wearable, not least the fact because it works with all three platforms. Yeah, I, I found myself reading Steve's review, and I do this a lot of time when I'm reading Steve's stuff. It won't really surprise everyone. And sort of sitting there knocking and going, yep, it's pretty much what I'd have written. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep, spot on. I mean, again, you know, the, the people who will say that we're kind of being Microsoft apologists say, what earth are they doing releasing this prototype or this experimental device? And kind of I agree with that. You know, you shouldn't, shouldn't have your customers be your beta testers, but actually everyone else is doing it. And... Microsoft is just kind of being a bit more obvious about it. They're not putting a big marketing push behind this. They've actually made it available for people who want to buy it. And, uh, uh, you know, the way I would talk about it, rather than maybe calling it prototype, which kind of inf implies slightly inferior quality, it's kind of experimental and a chance for Microsoft to learn things and also for all of us who are interested in it to learn about it too. Yeah. Fully formed and fully rounded wearable projects are actually pretty few and far between. I mean, you can look at something like Fitbit, but that does a much smaller amount of functionality. The, the Microsoft Band is actually quite a complex device, and certainly in terms of the sensors that sit inside of it, one of the most sophisticated wearables that you can buy. And I think a lot of that kind of prototype or experimental feel comes from the design, and there's definitely room for improvement there. And I think Microsoft would be uh, the, the first to acknowledge that. This is not a 
desirable piece of jewelry like the apple watch for example which you know i've had a chance to have a play with but in some ways it feels like microsoft has thought a little bit more about what you might actually do with you know the the functionality the the features on it and the apple watch which for those who haven't tried one and actually the thing that surprised me most there wasn't this burning reason for me to keep wearing it or there wasn't this consistency of experience that you've come to expect with uh you know, Apple products, and it did feel very much like an extension of the the iPhone in a lot of what it did. Now there are exceptions to that, um, and I still think it's a really great pro- you know, product. Apple have done uh, a good job, but just as with this, it's certainly not for everybody. And I think it's actually got a relatively restricted kind of uh, market. Don't get me wrong; you know, they're still going to sell probably tens of millions of these over the course of its lifetime. But everyone will be looking for the second version. You know, Microsoft is definitely more on the experimental side, but some of the things it, it, I, I feel it's executed better. You know, the exercise tracking is an interesting case in point, and you know, the the band's been notable for a while for being one of the very few wearables to actually include a standalone GPS. So you don't have to, if you're doing a run, for example, take your phone with you. You can do everything from the band, and I particularly like the way that it's emphasizing kind of the glance the micro interactions rather than trying to shoehorn a full app onto the phone now i think that's actually partly you can you can criticize uh you know the android wear and the apple watch for that that's more about what the third party developers have chosen to do with it but that brings up an important point no one really knows what the great thing to do with these products is yet we're still learning about it and i don't think there's a clear consensus emerging the one thing that everyone kind of agrees with you might as well do exercise tracking but that's actually a relatively limited market when we're comparing it to the side of the smartphone market you know, not everyone is obsessed by quantified self and doing health <laughs> and fitness um it, i mean I, I i will say that you know i personally have got into that and enjoy doing it it's not something i particularly need to share with everybody and the microsoft band in terms of the, you know, the sensors that sit inside it and fact that it works you say across different platforms goes into the microsoft health and the cloud that's associated with that which in some markets can actually get into your gp surgery as well it's actually pretty fully formed and microsoft is one of the few companies who's arguably in a position to do that in a in a cross-platform way and that to me makes um the microsoft band pretty interesting so yeah uh, you know I, i did agree with your review and it's been interesting there's some you know, some of the comments sort of definitely reflect on that um people talk about their own experience with it but also some of the third-party stuff that's come out, you know, and I think the ones you're identifying, Cortana Voice, you know, that's another stro- thing that works on wrist-worn uh, wearables, um, and that you know you identify the, the kind of the health or the, the tracking elements as being interesting. It's also interesting, I think, that the notification bit of it feels particularly particularly strong, um, and you know, yes, I want to see a second-generation product, but if you're kind of interested in this kind of thing and just want to learn more about it. There's a lot to be said for the band because actually it's relatively competitively priced compared to kind of the full-on smartwatches. And, you know, it, it kind of fits between that fitness tracker space and full-on smartwatch. Um, you know, it's interesting. That one thing I wanted to ask you, Steve, is how did you find the rectangular, rectangular screen compared to some of the round or the square screens that you get on Android? Was that an information limitation or was that a good thing? I thought it would be a big limitation, and especially because if you're trying to <laughs> scroll through an email from Rafe Blanford, then uh, you've written 20 lines, and you're able to view them four lines at a time and s- swipe up on this very narrow screen. However, if you treat it 
as a just getting a glimpse of what's waiting for you in terms of notifications, it actually works quite well because we're so used to having the live tile interface, having literally uh, numerical summaries on our start screens and our smartphones. Like you, like you glanced it, and in one glance, you see you've got two text messages, five emails, three new, I don't know, RSS feeds, whatever you t- happen to track, um, six new Cortana headlines. And, and you get exactly that same t- numerical tiles on the watch because it's got this sort of long... Um, narrow display you, the tiles are basically laid out in a, in a strip and actually fact, it turns out that's not a problem i you 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 mentioned going out for a run so you might go out for a run and it's it's G, tracking the gps and when you come back after your run the watch has actually kept a, a track log of where all you've been and that it, it gets downloaded into the microsoft health application so you can actually display where you've been on on a run but as the the the, the Microsoft Band then connects up to your um, smartphone again, to your Lumia or whatever. Um, all of a sudden, it gets the notifications, and those live those live tiles, if I can call them that, they start to pop up and and get populated. And all of a sudden, you can see, having got back from your five mile run, Rafe, you can see that uh, you have got those three text messages and seven emails. And you don't it with most d- devices like Android Wear. I'm using that as an example. Um, you actually have to kind of step through the notifications one by one, swipe that away, swipe that away until you get to the one you want. With By having breaking them out in terms of uh, categorized according to these tiles, you can see, instantly say, okay, well, I'll, I'll leave the emails and the headlines and the RSS for later. Let me go to my SMS messages. So you instantly can tap on the uh, the SMS tile and then swipe through those messages very quickly. So I found it a very quick way into the, into the interface and I... I thought I'd hate the fact that it wasn't a square or a round screen. In actual fact, it proves remarkably practical. That's interesting. So there's a a less is more element to it here. And I think this is one of the interesting things about uh, smartwatches in particular. You know, this idea of glanceability and, you know, Apple call it glance and uh, Google have their various things as well. And this idea, you know, also transfers onto uh, smartphones themselves with kind of Google now, I think, being archetype that we've seen a lot of but actually cortana is sort of starting to do the same things on windows phone as well you know little bits of information but i think windows phone as a whole is actually set up to be more glanceable because of the live tiles that initiation into how it works seems to be you know something that works better uh on on windows and with this band and obviously this is a comment assuming that you're using it with a windows phone device um, that you that sense of the familiar it's it kind of less alien than um, Android Wear and the Apple Watch can feel when you're using it with their respective host platforms. Um, so it, interesting to hear that because that was kind of my big big concern. And uh, I think your reaction to it presumably very much depends on what you expect to get out of a device like this. If you're looking for something that emphasises glance and notification with them, this sort of ability to use sensors in an interesting way you'll find the microsoft band very compelling if you're expecting it to be kind of a mini smartphone on your wrist then you'll <laughs> probably be disappointed is that is that fair it is fair and it goes down to get to what you'd expect a wearable to do and i think a lot of people who are experimenting with smartwatches and let's face it the entire wearables industry is in beta or prototype phase now people have been experimenting with for example the apple watch have found that it just constantly annoys them with notifications they have to do a lot of curation and management to stop those notifications taking over their lives because the watch is not designed to be a phone it's not designed to have the same quantity of notifications thrust through it you want that that smart smart band or smartwatch or wearable to completely curate 
um, everything that's happening on your smartphone and just show you the stuff that you absolutely need to know and to take the measurements you need to take. And it's a, it really is a question of honing down, what, as you say, exactly what you wanted to do. And I think the Microsoft Band concept, I think, here is excellent. I just think that it needs another tweak in terms of the hardware and vision. And it does need a version too, but I can absolutely see where they're going on this one. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think this speaks to the whole future of you know, how these devices work, you know, whether they're companion or standalone. I find it difficult to see them as anything other than companion devices. Um, and they do, do get interesting when you start getting payment in an Apple Pay. I think it's a really, really big one potentially. Um, in addition to the exercises, health tracking, use of sensors that we've talked about. I think this is a topic we're going to come back to again, Steve. I mean, I know you've been yeah. looking at some of the third party apps. So maybe, um, we'll be able to talk about that a bit in a, a future podcast, but really intriguing. And again, it sort of is. I think Fed said it's a bit ambitious of Microsoft to be looking at this space and, you know, basically you haven't got a lot of choice if you want to have some kind of wrist wearable and use it with a Windows phone device uh, beyond a few uh, fitness trackers, uh, whereas, you know, the competing ecosystems clearly have a, a, a little little more in the way of options, you know, and having not had a Pebble, for example, Windows phone client, which has been disappointing because I enjoy using uh, Pebble for its long battery life, um, it's a, none of the watches that I've tried, uh, including several that I bought myself, has actually lived permanently on my wrist. So I'm quite keen to try Microsoft Band and see if it can survive survive that kind of ultimate test. Um, I suspect I might get frustrated with some of the uh, limitations of the design, but we'll hopefully I'll get hold of one yeah. at some point and I'll I'll, I'll report back. Um, so thank you for that in depth review. Uh, it's generated a lot of discussion. I think there's topics to come back to around waterproofing and third-party apps and how you do that curation that you talked about in order to make it move it out of kind of geek territory and into mass market because i think as you quite rightly identify at the moment it's very much one for those who are interested in trying out something new and because of the price point and because of the cross-platform one actually i think it's a relatively easy recommendation to make for people to have a look at or at least put on their consideration list in addition to some of the lower price android wear devices um, and then obviously it's being competing against something like the Apple Watch, which is uh, significantly more expensive. <laughs> the Apple Watch is significantly more expensive than just about everything. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, we are completely out of time, Rafe, but I just wanted to mention very briefly um, that there is a new Lumia Camera 5 Beta if you've got a select number of devices, and we list them in the story, so do go, do go look. But uh, if you're absolutely passionate about uh, Lumia Camera, then you get the ability to keep all your pro settings like ISO and white balance and stuff between launches of the application, which is previously, if you went out of the app and then went back in, you'd have to sort of set them all up all over again. So these do get remembered now, which is rather nice, and you can reset them if you want to just by going into the rich capture mode and then back again. There's also a new version of Cortana, effectively, or at least at the back end, um, we've noticed that uh, there's now getting, uh, I guess, almost hourly weather forecast changes on the live tile, complete with little animations. And these things have presumably been in the software all the time and just being turned on at the server end. It's rather nice, Rave, to be, you just open your start screen. In addition to the other live tile information, you've now got a kind of a quasi-animated update as to what's happening outside the window. <laughs> yeah, no, it's interesting. Cortana which, I mean, I was enthusiastic about to begin with and then sort of got a little bit cold feet and sort of said, I wonder how useful it is. But there's various little bits of functionality of which this weather is just the most recent one uh, that's been added that adds a bit of value. And I've, I've found myself using it more and more. I've also been using it to keep up with headlines because that's the other thing you can set up to. You can set some favourite topics. Actually, just as a quick way of alerting me to things. And, you know, there were a lot of people who weren't fan 
effects of the search button on Windows Phone being there permanently. But as a kind of command line to getting hold of information, I'm finding Cortana increasingly useful, not necessarily using the, the voice stuff, but uh, yeah, the, uh, and these weather icons are just the, kind of the, the most recent example of it. And of course, this is uh, pretty fun because it, it works on the last one. You don't actually have to go into the details of uh, Cortana to see it. So yes, definitely a thumbs up from me on that. I rather like the fact the update just kind of happened without me having to do anything. Yeah, yeah, we're really quite being quite a, a fan of Cortana here as well. And um, I've got a plan, Rafe. Actually, you know we're recording on a Thursday, and we normally do it on Tuesday, which means we've either got to do a podcast in five days' time, or we extend it and do one in a week and a half's time. And this, as this podcast is running long, I want to suggest that we carry on for a bit longer. Let's do an app of the week, etc., and a bit more chat, and then we can say this is our podcast for the next ten or eleven days, and then we'll be right back, raring to go with another Tuesday podcast. Is that okay with you? That sounds like a very coming plan to me, Steve. <laughs> well, if you can think of a third-party app of the week that you've been impressed by, I'll go first. Um, I know I've mentioned this a while ago because I did a roundup of uh, guitar tuners. I'm a bit of a musician in my spare time. And uh, I, the idea of having a separate electronic gadget just to tune your instrument seems absolutely crazy in 2015. Well, we've got all these smartphones with microphones and high power processors and displays to feedback information. So I'm going to give a plug here to Guitar Tuner, and that's T U N A, just to be confusing, nothing to do with the fish. Guitar Tuner, really, really uh, easy to use. Um, what is most impressed about it is that it's as you twang your string in this case, uh, as people will know, may or may not know, if you twang guitar string, it kind of changes in pitch after the initial pluck, just very slightly. But this shows you graphically how the, fre the frequency as it changes, and it, it it tells you that the frequency it's it's kind of gravitating towards. And when you hit that magic frequency, and you know that the string is actually in tune, it gives you a little like a ping noise. So basically, you twang it and you tweak and you twang it and you tweak till you hear the ping, which sounds awfully unmusical. Musical, but that's kind of how it works and it's just really really effective it's bright it's colorful it's very windows phony guitar tuner t-u-n-a um, and i've been very impressed by it so uh, go, go look it up there's a review on the site as well if you want to search for it so okay. right well my app pick is actually one that i want steve to talk about because i know he's tried it i ah. haven't really uh, <laughs> looked at it in much detail but pocket cast is a a subject uh, close to your heart, Steve, podcasting, mine too. And I know that this has now arrived on Windows Phone. It's certainly one of the more popular podcasting apps elsewhere. So ha have you given a, I know you've had a quick look at this. Can you give us a kind of a summary? Is this as good as everyone says it is? It is, but I'll give it that there's a caveat. Uh -huh. And the caveat is that all the other podcasting applications are also as good as <laughs> people say they are. We started out, and I started doing this this mammoth series of comparisons. I think we had started off with about nine or ten podcast podcatchers, and then it kept, people kept releasing new applications. We're now up to, I think it's 20 at the last count, yes, 20, 20 podcatchers on one platform, which is insane. 20 applications that do exactly the same job. And originally there was one or two that really stood out. I mean, we've both been a fan of Podcast Lounge, and I, then I became a fan of um, Carboncast and... Uh, um, Podcasters. There's one called podcasting as well. Uh, bring, is, yes. bring, bring, bringcast. There's lots of applications, and every time I try each of these, I am perpetually impressed by how well it works. Then I go back to the um, the pod podcast application built into Windows Phone. I found out that actually syncs your podcast subscriptions between devices in real time, so you can, you keep the same um, subscriptions live on all your Windows Phone devices 
uh, with, with, so you, you, you pick, pick up a brand new device and you sign in with your Microsoft account. Hey, presto, podcasts has all your um, podcast subscriptions. No need to import the OPML file. No need to synchronize with an online server apart from the one that's built into the OS. So in every case, I'm finding that there are the multiple tools that do the job just as well. Um, Pocket Cast does a very good job. I just think it's a, a year or two too late to the market. If the developer decided to go for Windows Phone two years ago, I think he could probably have ruled the roost. As it is, it's a very polished application that has all the features I look for, including background agent uh, auto downloads and uh, chronological display of new material. Very graphically glossy, everything you could want, want, except that there are now five, six, seven, eight other applications off Windows Phone, which all do the job just as well. So I think it's a very crowded sphere. I presume the developers either taking advantage of one of these new bridges, and there's going to be one of the test applications for Microsoft's new development system, or he's just thinking, well, okay, I've done everything I can to the Android and iOS versions. It's time to, do, to finally look at Windows Phone. But I would argue he's left it a tiny bit late. Yes, but it's interesting because... Uh Windows Phone, of course, is still a relatively small um, market compared to Android and iOS for apps. You can certainly understand why it's coming in third place, although the most recent Kantar data certainly says uh, Windows Phone is maintaining the 10% share in kind of uh, the EU5 and 15% in Italy and France. Uh, but it's funny you mentioned the built-in podcast application. I too noticed that it was syncing data, and I was sort of rather taken aback. I shouldn't be, because, of course, that's something that Microsoft talked about with uh, Windows 8, and of course, it's uploading things um, to OneDrive in the background. And actually, there's a whole bunch of APIs that allow you to do that pretty seamlessly, and it's basically having your app data saved in addition to kind of a list of apps that you installed. And typically, when you restore a device, you know it will um, bring back the apps, and then you might have to restore some of the app data or get it yourself. But of course, if the uh, developer is aware of the APIs, or rather chooses to take advantage of them, it can actually do that as well. And uh, for for the likes of you and me, Steve, who do have multiple devices and will switch occasionally have review devices, that sort of thing is a real, real boom. But of course, it also starts getting interesting when you do it across uh, different types of devices. So podcasts presumably could uh, work on Windows 10 on the desktop and tablet. And certainly podcasts are one of those things. You might well switch between devices when you're you know, using them or playing back. And really interesting if you start thinking about it in terms of the TV, you know, something like the Xbox. So worth watching up. Pocket Cast did catch my attention for having the uh, cross-platform syncing as well. It will do to Android and iOS, which if you're one of the uh, multi-ecosystems people that listen to this podcast, that's be attractive. But um, I also wanted to pick up on a, uh, an app which you managed to write about after I thought I'd, I'll talk about it on the podcast, and that's uh, <laughs> Expedia 2.0. And yeah. really just highlight the fact that they've actually done quite a significant amounts of improvement effectively what's happened is more of the stuff that was linked out to the mobile web or was kind of this hybrid functionality has moved into the app itself and it's a good lesson i think to look at some of these um, apps which you think might work just as kind of a web wrap or direct you to the mobile site actually once you get the full kind of native uh, ui you start to appreciate why it's good for companies to do that in this case it's hotel and flight search and actually there's still a bit of a hybrid thing going on here uh but there are a couple of um, apps that do something similar to this already on Windows Phone. You know, there's Hotels.com and various others, aggregators and uh, Skyscanner. But obviously, this is um, of interest because it's adding another option. I mean, Expedia. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is a Microsoft connection there, but not as uh, big as people uh, sort of might imagine. There's kind of, yeah, we won't get into the backstory there. But kind of interesting that 
actually is a way to kind of find out about flight information. It's, it's a pretty yeah. attractive app. And, um, I thought, yeah, impressive update going from version uh, one point something to two point naught. And I wonder if we'll see more of the kind of Expedia functionality rolled into kind of this native app. And it's, you know, one approach that developers can actually take is, you know, do the basics to begin with and then improve the app iteratively over time. And that might, you know, be easier to make from an investment point of view, you know, because you can probably afford to have a whole team of Android and iOS developers. If you've got less resources, you know, for, for Windows, maybe this is an approach you take. And, um, and certainly when you start talking about the universal apps with Windows 10, I think it becomes very interesting for, for some people would absolutely be willing to have uh, an Expedia tile. Um, on both their, their laptop and their phone. And if you can sync the data across them and have that same kind of interface so they only have to learn about it once, that starts to become really interesting. I mean, there is a danger that all your data and interesting lessons and learned behavior gets locked into an app silo. And I think open web advocates are slightly horrified by the extent to which this is happening. But consumers will probably vote with their feet. So that's kind of uh, an app of the week with some extra commentary, Steve. <laughs> I did like, actually, in Expedia, one particular aspect of the UI. And that uh, I, I'm very continually frustrated by the shopping stroke, buying stroke, ordering experience, whether mm -hmm. it's on phone or on uh, the desktop. Um, but when you have multi-screen approach, you, you step one of seven, and every step is a, a reload and a new page. And you have to pick out new elements of the UI and which forms, which buttons to have to press, which fields to have to fill in. It just goes on forever. One nice thing of the Expedia UI on on the phone I noticed was that once you're actually into the okay, I, I'm prepared to start, you know, specifying some details about a room, for example, in a hotel, and to, to start ordering, you know, number of adults, number of children, how you're going to pay. All of that is on one continuous pane. You literally just swipe up the screen and everything's there as if it's one long bit of paper. And I just think that made it so easy. It made it, you, you actually wanted, it drew you into the, the ordering and the buying process so that you just wanted to just swipe up the screen. Oh, there's a bit more. Oh, I can answer that. I can answer that. Oh, look, it's time to buy. I, it's almost it's so dangerous that I found myself, well, you know, kind of booking a, a weekend away in Madrid just because <laughs> it made it so easy within the application. But yes, I was really impressed by the, that aspect of the UI. Yeah, it's interesting. I did notice that you were obviously keen on Madrid, so we'll obviously um, hear a report back from you in, in, in due course. But yeah, it's interesting, that infinite scroll, it, it, it's kind of a contrast to where we were, if you go back a, a while in mobile, where it's kind of simplified down, have multi-step approaches. But I agree with you, kind of this idea of infinite scroll and sort of reloading in the background without you realising it's going on. It's actually more loading, I should say, than reloading. Uh, interesting. There, there are a few things that can go wrong with that approach, of course. You know, you do have to assume a decent connection, which doesn't always happen. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, again, this is evolution of app design and the way, way of doing things. And it's a nice reminder that actually we're not in a, a fixed state and there's still plenty more to come. Um, you know, when we look at the iPhone, Android and actually Windows Phone, you know, their core experiences and offerings haven't really changed since the platform launched but the the apps are continually refreshing it can be a bit of a problem because sometimes it doesn't feel very very consistent and you know this does bring up the whole problem it's difficult for people to use you know that you have to invest time and effort in learning how to how to do things working it out and digital natives are probably sitting going oh it just works i know how to work it out but i'm sure there are plenty of people out there who are slightly horrified by oh i've got to my favorite apps changed i've got to work it out again or how does this one work I'll just go back to using the web or I'll call someone up. Um, it's, you know, one of those big, big usability challenges or 
consistency of experience challenges. But uh, yeah, I, I do think Expedia here deserve a bit of credit. They've done some very interesting work, and it's certainly a far cry from the first version of the app. Yeah, absolutely. And just a one final footnote on that podcatching thing. People have been pestering me saying, Steve, when are you going to do a, a new podcatching roundup with all the latest editions? Just to mention, uh, the, the existing version of my roundup was 10,000 words. And it was so big and so complex with all the tables and graphics. It kept breaking the, the all about Windows Phone content management system, it literally breaking it. So I, I've got to find a different way to present these 20 applications, Ray. If I can feel another table coming on, but then people will complain their tables don't <laughs> render properly on their Windows Phone. So I really am onto a, a no-win situation. I will think about it, everyone out there, and I will find a way of reintroducing the introducing the concept of podcatchers and comparing them in some way that's palatable to everyone. So do watch this space. But um, We are at about, uh, I don't know, about 50 or so minutes, Rafe. So this will be your, uh, your your 10 daily uh, All About Windows Phone Insight podcast. We'll be back on a regular slot of a Tuesday on Tuesday week. And hopefully this has given you something to enjoy and uh, to carry you through. So it's goodbye from me. Yes, and goodbye from me as well. As ever, if you've got any questions or topics you want us to address, give us a bit of time to think about them over the next 10 days. That'll be absolutely great. And you can reach us via email, Twitter, the kind of the usual channels. But I'll sign off as well. And as ever, thank you very much for listening. It's always great to share our thoughts with you on this podcast. And thanks very much to the ever capable Steve Litchfield, who's brought up some great content in the last week and has been sharing his insights with us in this episode. So goodbye from me as well.